Yesterday evening, we had breaking news that the Financial Innovation and Technology for the 21st Century Act, they're calling it FIT, Financial Innovation and Technology, was introduced by Congressman uh, Glenn Frenchill, Dusty Johnson, but it's Glenn Thompson, right? Yeah, just I do my due diligence in advance. Glenn Thompson, Dusty Johnson, and Frenchill. A lot of people were expecting that to come from Patrick McHenry, McHenry or Warren Davidson or Tom Emmer, but they are all supporting this bill. It really lays out a very comprehensive framework for digital asset regulation in the United States. Finally, this is a real bill actually proposed, actually on the docket, will be marked up in the coming weeks and will likely see a final version that could pass and go to the Senate and to the president. This is absolutely huge news. So, of course, we have Eleanor here today who broke that news yesterday. She has a habit of breaking huge news these days, really ahead of all the stories. And I've got David Lynn today here with me to co-host. We're trying something new out. My favorite co-host. I love going on his show and watch his channel religiously. So amazing to have the two of them together to discuss this watershed moment. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and hit that like button. Now, we usually do a week in review on Friday, but we reviewed almost all the news during this week, and it was a relatively slow week, but not anymore. This is absolutely huge news, and we've been seeing a major uptick in legislation around digital assets. Of course, we have this bill in Congress. We have a stablecoin bill coming in Congress. But we also had the Lummis and Gillibrand bill, bill reintroduced in the Senate. And there are probably parts of each of those that make a lot of sense to incorporate. I have a feeling that's what's going to happen. First, before we get started, I want to go ahead and bring on David Lynn. We woke you up extremely early today to do this on a Friday. Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I was telling you, I don't even get up this early for my own show. This is how much I like you guys. So uh, yeah. thank you for having me here. Good morning pleasure and i and i do like that we have uh somewhat matching backgrounds that's awesome i feel like i'm i'm copying you now i need the uh, uh scott melker report right here and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we have to aesthetically match otherwise you know the the picture on picture wouldn't wouldn't look good yeah so before we get started obviously david when i met him was with kitco and was doing uh mad these massive interviews here then one day i got an email he said i'm done i'm going on my own so could you just give us the quick uh, pitch on what, what happened there on your own channel, what kind of interviews you're doing? Like I said, guys, first of all, his interviews get like tens and tens and tens of thousands of views. Like the first week he was up, massively popular, huge engagement. So so what are you doing there? What's the goal? Thanks. I um, Well, thank you for uh, introducing me, Scott. Pleasure working with you. I've interviewed you a couple of times over the last couple of, uh, couple of years, actually. We've known each other for a while, so you're great. Everyone should subscribe to the Wolf of All Streets if you haven't already. So my channel is dedicated to finance and economics, uh, geopolitics and tech. Uh, I started my channel in March, uh, mostly with interviews, a few solo reports, but mostly through interviews like you've mentioned. And with experts in those areas, I grown to uh, close to 92, 90, 91, 92,000 subscribers as of today in about four months and uh, up about 7.7 million views total, um, averaging around 1.7 to 1.8 million views a month. Um, my goal is just to educate the public about finance economics. We cover stocks, commodities, crypto, blockchain, AI, any tech news, trends. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. And guys, if you make a comment over there, if you want me to dress like David on Fridays. 
I'll literally do it. I'll show up in a tie suit on. I feel I feel just wildly underdressed. And now, uh, if, if we want to make you look even worse, let's go ahead and bring on Eleanor. Eleanor, welcome again. As usual, breaking news here, right? I can show it right here. Breaking the Financial Innovation Technology for the 21st Century Act. Was introduced today by Congressman GT, yeah, Glenn Thompson. I butchered it at the beginning. Rep. French Hill and Dusty Johnson. How do you get this breaking news? First of all, like, how are you always the first one reporting on everything? <laughs> I have great sources that I trust, and luckily trust me. So we're in contact constantly. I do channel checks every day, and I did have a tip off in the morning that it might be coming. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear whether it was ready yet, and. We know that Glenn Thompson said that yeah, it would be ready or, you know, it would be introduced by the end of the week. So it could have been yesterday, could have been today. I just had a sneaky suspicion it was going to happen yesterday, and it did. So uh, maybe you can just give us, and then uh, David can dig in more with you, maybe you can just give us the broad strokes of what this bill is attempting to at least do, because I already, of course, see horrible takes, bad conclusions, the usual Twitter nonsense. Yeah. So for me, I think this is a really positive step forward. I went over the bill. I went over the comments, the news articles. And basically, the breakdown is that this is the first step in the right direction for some kind of comprehensive legislation for cryptocurrency. It gives both the SEC and the CFTC a seat at the table in terms of being able to regulate this thing, um, jurisdiction over different things. The SEC gets jurisdiction over digital assets that are not digital commodities that don't meet the decentralization tests. Um, the CFTC gets jurisdiction over digital commodities and their intermediaries. So kind of things that we thought were going to happen, a lot of stuff that was actually in the original bill from June, uh, a lot of stuff that wasn't, a lot of new stuff. Um, I think the key thing here, though, is, you know, aside from both uh, regulatory agencies being able to to get a hold of this thing, there's also a safe harbor that was brought up, which basically means, you know, existing digital assets, existing companies can file a notice that they will register with, you know, either the SEC or the CFTC, and they will be exempt from any enforcement actions on digital tokens, offerings, um, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, things on their platform that my the SEC or CFTC might think is, you know, regular. But if they apply and they say, hey, we have the intent to register, um, we're going to protect our customer assets and we're going to disclose these, uh, put these disclosures, you know, in full force then we will not regulate. So kind of that safe harbor you mentioned, Scott, earlier, we talked right before the show, what Hester Pierce suggested a couple of years ago, right? So these technologies can can have this safe space to grow while the Congress is coming up with these rules and the agencies are putting them into place. This thing could take a while, you know? I mean, it's we've got to mark it up in the House, obviously, then it's got to go to the Senate, then it's got to go to the president. And then, you know, but that takes a long time. It could take a couple, I don't know, years maybe. I'm not sure if we, we get the Dem votes. Uh, on this thing, which I think it's looking decently okay, but uh, not, you know, not great for sure. And this is still a very much Republican-led effort. So those are kind of the biggest takeaways, I think, and and also um, providing a pathway for uh, digital assets that were started out as securities and have transitioned to commodities. That's they've they've written a sort of a uh, a way forward for tokens that have those uh, attributes. So I think that's important too. Yeah, that I actually, in reviewing it and digging in, did not really see the major safe harbor parts of it for existing projects. That's really interesting. Can you talk just a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, what I read, it would be existing tokens and existing projects, existing companies. They have to submit their intent to register to either the CFTC or the SEC. And, you know, depending, I think they have to do a review 
outcome of it. And but while that's being reviewed, they're able to function, they're able to uh, trade and exist as they normally have done. But they, in exchange for that, they they promise to you know safeguard customer funds, to provide disclosures if either agency requires it. It's basically like a promise saying you know we'll let you function if you promise us that you're not doing anything shady. Yeah, I mean, David, have you been giving this a look at all? I mean, I kind of dug through it and a lot of it is, like I said, sort of obviously legally, there's over 200 pages, right? So I've just been reading summaries. I didn't get to dig into the bill. Was there anything that struck you as really out of the ordinary or, or unexpected? I, for me, I will tell you, and we'll talk about it in a little while, was the part that this is actually going to allow unaccredited investors in the United States to participate. But we can get to that in a moment. David, was there anything that any takes that you had, anything immediately that uh, struck you? Well, there was an enforcement section in the bill. Um, I'm curious as to how this is going to be enforced. Um, maybe Eleanor has more thoughts. You know, the whole point of having uh, crypto on, let's say, a DEX, a decentralized exchange, is that you're supposed to be able to self-custody your own assets. So suppose it's not registered. You're trading something where you own something that's not properly registered with the SEC. What is the recourse on that? How are they going to... They're going to tell you to shut down, hand over your keys. I, I think that's a good question, and and something that also refers back to Scott, what you just brought up with the accredited investor uh, allowance, right? You, how are they going to know, you know, your income, right? Because it's based on a certain percentage of your income. Are you going to have to disclose every single way, you know, you make money, every single for you have? I mean, it's it's and the same to your to your point, David. I think you know these are. These are uh, methods that I think it's going to be difficult to get off the ground, but, you know, it's sort of wishful thinking in a way, but I think there's ways to make it work. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure how, but I think think it's possible. Yeah. I'm assuming that like a mortgage or something, it'll be based on the previous tax year because otherwise if it's February 1st, 2023, and they're going to do your taxes in April of 2024, they have no way of knowing. Just so people understand, let's talk about exactly what this is saying. So this is really, to me, this was the point that struck me massively because unaccredited investors in the United States have never been able to participate in literally anything. Forget even crypto. You can't uh, you know, invest in your friend's company. You can't participate in private equity. And they've changed those laws over and over again. But generally, you need to you know, have $5 million in assets or be making a million every two years or something, whatever the accredited investor laws are. So this says, issuers of tokens would have to limit purchases to 5% or less of an individual individual's annual income or net worth, whichever is greater. Regardless of income, in order for the exemption to apply, an issuer could not sell more than 10% of its tokens to any one purchaser, and the transaction could not involve other digital access or traditional debt or equity. So to be clear, this is if someone's creating a new token, to my understanding, which usually, honestly, they don't even let American accredited investors in token sales. Right. It's usually just easier to say foreign, but sometimes American credit investors get in through a SAFT or some sort of other way of doing it. But this is saying that your average person could put 5% of their annual income, net annual income, into a private sale and get the same access as everyone else. Unaccredited investors have never been able to participate in anything. This to me is just massive. Yeah. And I think it's one of the first things you pointed out yesterday, Scott, on Twitter. I saw you you take that specific section and tweet about it. I think that is definitely huge. And I think people are going to take that with open arms. It worries me slightly that, you know, this is sort of precedent setting and they've never been able to get in before. Why, you know, the Democrats who are kind of so staunch on traditional regulation and 
sticking to the way things have been, why would they necessarily allow for for this to happen? So I wonder if that'll be something that, you know, gets, uh, you know, amended maybe in next week's markup or, you know, is, is a point of contention because I feel like this is almost too good to be true, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's funny that now we think 5% is too good to be true, right, David? I mean, there's a lot of people who probably want to be all in these assets and, but I'm curious to understanding what it what what is this issuers could offer up to seventy five million dollars worth of yeah. tokens in a twelve month period. Am I getting that right? So what so basically you if you're a large project, what do you do? Like you that's not enough. I what you're I mean, yeah, it seems like if you're launching to issue seventy five million tokens in a year is pretty good. And this is basically like addressing the come in and register. Well, well, hold this on. Part. If you're if you're if you're an FTX, think about it. If you're an FTX and you want to make another FTT, you've only got a seventy-five million dollar year window. I mean that. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair for larger projects and exchanges who want to do a security token. But sure. if you're like a, a brand new NFT project or something that has a token attached to it, either way, this is okay. So maybe so that that shows me it's really yeah. aimed for the it's really aimed for the smaller project. Yeah, right, and I, and I like that. Be, yeah, but the, the thing I like about that is that it's at least saying that coming and register is nonsense and that there is a threshold, whatever that may be, in markup where you don't need to come in and register in the same way. I don't know if you guys saw this, but I'm, I'm just going to bring it up. Maybe this is the best way to do this. This is the Agriculture Committee did a myth. Uh, they did a fact or fiction on, on the bill, which I found just absolutely uh, incredible when you dig into it. But they said, here's the first one. All digital assets other than Bitcoin are securities that should be regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission. That's the myth. Fact. Not all digital assets are securities. While some digital assets can be offered as part of an investment contract and some may be tokenized, a clear framework for determining when a digital asset is not a security is critical. Here's my problem, though. Okay, I love that they're saying, hey, Gary, back off. What I don't love is that we still don't have a framework, to my knowledge, even in this 200-page bill, that's really clear on how they're going to determine what these things are. I think a lot of it, from what I understand and from what I've read, it's all focused on the decentralization argument, right? Like you don't, I don't think they mentioned Howie in here or anything. I know they mentioned it in one of their supplemental documents. Um, but to my understanding, the key test for whether something is a digital commodity or a restricted digital asset, which would be under SEC jurisdiction, is the proof of decentralization. Um, and do you really have to prove, you literally have to like, I don't know how you do it. I'm assuming like paperwork and meetings, but you have to prove to the SEC and the CFTC that you are either sufficiently decentralized to be a commodity or not to be a security. So, yeah. Um, I have a, can I just jump in here real quick for uh, Eleanor? I have a quick question. Have you seen anything in this bill that says that uh, if you want to register um, anything, you have to basically, uh, well, you have to uh, submit your identity. Can you do it anonymously? It doesn't get that specific. Uh, not that I saw, David. It, it, I, okay. I think this is very kind of uh, baseline right now. And that... Because I'm just thinking of this amendment. sentence. I'm sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. I was just saying it'll probably come with maybe amendments and, and as we get kind of deeper into sort of the whole how and why and the, the DeFi stuff. Because this doesn't really... I, I know a lot of people have said, you know, DeFi people have said this is going to destroy DeFi. Um, I'm not the, you know, biggest expert on on like, DeFi and all that kind of stuff, but like I think I see sort of their point because they they specify what a digital asset is in a certain way that excludes some DeFi products, um, like liquid. Or, or puts language where they think that if you're digging into it, they put language where they think that the SEC could then 
utilize that language to say that maybe these things are not, and it's the same sort of slippery slope that we always have. But I don't know, man, I'm an eternal optimist. I think that we're heading in the right direction. David, does someone answer your question? It says token issuers would have to be organized in the U.S., so they will have to create a legal U.S. entity. So I think that you can't do that being anonymous. Would have to have a business plan. Yes, you can chat GPT that in five minutes. And not be subject to any enforcement order from the SEC in the five years before it offers a token under the exemption. So you don't have to necessarily come in and register your business for the offering, but you do have to come in and register, which they're giving you a path for it. So they at least know who you are and that this is happening and that this is a real asset. And so listen, you're not gonna you're not gonna launch what I what I like about this is you're not gonna just launch a meme coin, register with the SEC and then rug pull. They'll know who you are. That's exactly where I was going with this. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that that's really good news because I think that this is going to allow people who, whether they have a good or a bad idea, to at least attempt to be entrepreneurs and build in this space without the restrictions of come in and register, which would have cost you $10 million and you would would have gotten rejected and called a security anyways. So this, I think, is actually huge. It's like they're, they're threading the needle. You know, you get uh, you you do have to register in some way, but basically gives anyone who wants to issue less than seventy five million dollars and is willing to at least probably KYC at AML and submit a business plan the opportunity to launch. This is to, I listen. I, I understand the cri- criticism of it. I understand. I we can bring up uh, it's this guy Gabriel Shapiro. It's right here. I'm assuming this was what you were alluding to, uh, Eleanor, because this yeah. tweet has gone somewhat viral. But was a huge fan of this bill and they took a lot of feedback, but unfortunately they made one change that completely alters the value prop of the bill, reintros massive ambiguity, re-empowers SEC enforcement and would wreak havoc on DeFi and then he kind of gets deeper into it. He also said that he thinks it's noteworthy that McHenry's not a sponsor on the bill and maybe that's why. That's complete crap, guys. We've talked to McHenry's team. He's the head of this committee. He's psyched. He's uh, writing quotes. He's in the media talking about this, but my point being, like, yeah, I'm sure that the uh, 75-year-old and 55-year-old guys who wrote this bill about uh, crypto didn't nail every single exact language of the first draft. Right. And I think there will be amendments. I think it will go deeper. This is kind of, like I said before, just the sort of baseline. But having a baseline is is good, right? Because we can only go up from here. Yeah, I mean, David, what else is, what is it? Yeah, go ahead. It also says an issuer cannot sell more than 10% of its tokens to any one purchaser, right? Does that include the issuer of the token? That's a huge question and a great one that I don't know the answer to. Yeah. I've actually reached out to the policy team just to run me through exactly what all these things mean. They haven't gotten back to me yet. Hopefully by the time we do the spaces, Scott, they will uh, they will give me yeah, an answer. Yeah, because that would, that would solve the issue of people not trusting pre-mines, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mostly that would that would force you to sell ninety percent and not hold beyond ten percent yourself is basically what you're saying. Uh huh. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to go through a couple more of these myths because I love that they're actually laying these out because it dispels a lot of even the classic fud that we've had about the digital asset space. Myth: Digital assets facilitate financial crimes such as money laundering. Legislation would legitimize a harmful industry. We hear this all the time from the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. Fact. Blockchain technology allows for better transaction tracing and asset monitoring than what is available with traditional finance. I mean, is it fair to say at this point that crypto is pretty crappy for crime? Crappy for crime? Yes. I think that's something that the older incumbents don't necessarily realize because that time, age as old as time argument is, oh, crypto is used for money laundering and bad purposes. But 
everything is immutably, immutably uh, recorded on the blockchain. So, you know, at the same time, yeah, we can. I think they cited that in there, right, Scott? They they uh, they alluded to the, was it the Silk Road? Yeah, there's the Colonial Pipeline. I know they'll have near where obviously the FBI was able to very quickly track down the assets because the guy says it's a Coinbase or something to cash out. I don't remember, but it was right. something absolutely ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, the FBI yeah. has had, yeah, especially with Bitcoin, to be quite honest. Like this isn't privacy coins. This isn't tornado cash. These guys were just trying to like move Bitcoin through mixers and failing. Then the next one, existing legal frameworks. This is the one I was alluding to when we came over here. In the accommodate digital assets. Digital asset market participants simply need to come in and register with the SEC, come into compliance with U.S. security laws, and operate legally. And then they basically just tear that to shreds. So are we done? Can we finally say you can't come in and register? Is Gary going to keep pounding this, David? What do you think? I think he's going to keep pounding it. <laughs> oh, he's not. He's not. <laughs> he, he, well, there's other things that he has to enforce. Um, you know, um, I don't. Yeah. I, I'm curious to how existing tokens are gonna are gonna uh, are gonna survive. Um, so that that would be interesting to develop. And uh, to your point about the law, what, what what about things like Ethereum? You know, is that is that gonna have to be registered? Who's gonna register that? Um, what about what about larger coins? Um, uh, suppose so. Some of these coins supposedly have um, multiple parties involved. Um, who's responsible for registering it? Um, why would anyone be incentivized to register? I, you know, these are these are questions that's going to come up. There's ten thousand coins. You know, here's another question for for I guess either one of you. I mean, you, of the thousands of coins, um, I don't suspect all of them are going to want to file or probably go through this process. Are we just going to see a complete washout of the altcoin market? I, I mean, it's my opinion that we've already seen a complete washout of the <laughs> altcoin market, right? I think that I they would just right. continue existing how they do. Right. If you don't, if you're anonymous, you don't want to come in and register. I don't think that even changes your current status because the regulatory view on it is so aggressive. I mean, Gary already assumes that they're all securities. I don't know if they'll be giving a pass. It's a really interesting question about ones in the past, but I think this is more about how the, how the industry moves forward. And that's my take, Eleanor. Do you, do you agree? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like most of this is written for, this is what you're going to be able to do if you want to innovate in this space. Yeah, 100%. I think it's a pathway forward for people who want to keep existing and want to keep doing the right thing and not get targeted useless, you know, uh, unwarrantedly by the SEC can actually make their business work. I think it's kind of a, you know, a, a, a safety blanket for people like that. But also, um, you know, Gary has said that he believes that all of these, most of these tokens are securities. And I think they made a point in in their, one of the fact sheets they sent out that 70% of the market that is, you know, digital commodities, 70% of the market have been deemed digital commodities, but that's only Bitcoin and Ethereum. So then you've got everything else, right? Well, maybe, maybe XRP now because of the ripple ruling, but you've got everything else. And does that, where does that fall? Um, you know, yeah, let's talk that, about that. Let's talk yeah. about the ripple ruling because you were obviously on top of that as well. We've talked it to death, but I think that there's still a lot of nuance there. I think it's very clear that that secondary sale, whether... It will be appealed or not. The narrative for the next year, year and a half will be YOLO, right? We're, we're not, these are not securities, Solana, uh, you know, ADA, all of them are taking that ruling. But there is the whole part of it was a security offering, right? And so 
there's really no path right now because of that, if this bill doesn't pass, where you can innovate or be an entrepreneur or launch in the United States. So in the existing status, you if this doesn't pass, you still can't do anything here because of the Ripple thing. So it's really bad. The Ripple news was really good for existing coins, being my point, because now they can say we are not securities, at least on secondary sale, but really bad for anyone who wants to launch a new project. Right. You've got the people who are sort of grandfathered in at this point, but then these people who want to come into the market are left sort of, you know, underwater. What am I going to do here? I think what the Ripple case has done for this legislation is, you know, kind of light a fire under the Democrats saying, there actually is a need for legislation because look what this judge ruled. She ruled. She ruled in two. She ruled in two parts, right? She ruled that the token itself is not a security, but the transactions surrounding it are sometimes securities when they're institutional sales, not necessarily secondary market sales. So that is sort of a a way of saying, you know, like we do need legislation, sensible legislation around this thing. So hopefully the Democrats kind of see that because. It is still a, sort of a contentious ruling, right? And uh, and even Gary himself, I think they were references in the in the documents as well. He said in 2021 we could use better regulations surrounding crypto, and then all of a sudden in 2022 he's like, oh no, we're good. We just need more resources. But everything that we're doing right now, everything we have is is enough to regulate this space. So yeah, it's like stopped two more million dollars yesterday. I literally, I think yesterday he was in Congress or two days ago asking for 72 more million dollars, which to me just means that Gary's bit off more than he can true and doesn't have the staff to go after everybody that he wants to. I mean, yeah. David, is your perception here that Gary's on his heels? I don't know if this is an echo chamber. I'm asking you because maybe I'm in the echo chamber and that's my opinion uh, because I'm getting all of my takes from crypto Twitter. But yeah. I mean, you know. Feels like he's losing and that uh, sentiment is turning heavily against him, not only in crypto, but his job in general. I mean, the way he's handled the SG and other things. Is he the most reviled man in crypto right now? I thought that was SBF. Is he Is he now the crown winner? I, I don't... I haven't followed him. I think he's always been above SBF in the most hated line. Do you remember when <laughs> I, 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 Gary Gets I don't know higher? I don't know if his job is uh, is is in danger. I, I you you actually interviewed uh, Warren Davidson, right, Scott? I mean, what what was his what was his sentiment on what was his sentiment on how the rest of Congress perceives uh, or, 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 or even the opposition perceives uh, Gary Gensler? Uh, I mean, judging by the conversations we've had, I think we spoke three times on Spaces and once on a podcast. Yeah. I think he sees it as very bipartisan, but doesn't think it should be. Um, you know, uh, I saw him retweeting Richie Torres just a day or two ago, who's obviously a Democrat from uh, from New York, uh, who is also kind of joined in on the fire Gary Gensler, or at least Gary Gensler back off because Ripple uh, put an end to your crusade. So I do think that it should be bipartisan, but I do think that a lot of these guys are still playing partisan politics. This is, I mean, this is obviously this bill is dominated by Republicans. I think the question really goes back to Eleanor's, which is, this, has enough happened now with Ripple, with the bills being proposed, with all the pushback to start to bring some Democrats on board? Because I think even Warren Davidson said he doesn't think it's Democrats that don't like it. He say, thinks it's a sect of the Democrats, right? The Elizabeth Warren, Gary Gensler side. And everyone else is basically just afraid to say anything because they're afraid of those people. I was going to say a very, a very vocal part of the Democrats. And Democratic leadership, too. It's not just these sort of freshman uh, people you've got coming in. It's the Brad Shermans, it's the Elizabeth Warrens, it's the Sherrod Browns who sort of, you know, they're leaders. They they sort of influence how these people think. And 
that's a problem when they're, they're thinking one way and an entire section of the financial markets are thinking another. This is my perhaps unpopular take, um, unpopular because maybe some crypto people may disagree with this, but I think Gary Gensler is just reacting or perhaps overreacting to all the fallouts and failures we've seen over the last year and a half. And they're like the Fed. They've perhaps, some might argue, over-tightened, but time may tell that perhaps this is a step in the right direction in terms of bringing clarity in the regulatory landscape. So I don't necessarily disagree with that, actually. But uh, the, 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 the untold part of that, I think, is that uh, he's overcorrecting for his own part in it, right? So I think that there's an argument that they're overcorrecting in a vacuum because of FTX and Voyager and Celsius and BlockFi. I would take the more sinister view that he is embarrassed that he and Maxine Waters and basically a big swath of the Democrats were doing photo opportunities with SBF and meeting with him and that Gary himself was allegedly, but there's some clear documentation, considering basically carving FTX out of the regulation and giving them a safe harbor themselves. So yes, I agree with you. I'm just not sure that it's uh, all in good faith, an accident, so to speak. Fair enough. Fair enough. Kennedy's take on it, didn't we, on Tuesday when he grilled Gensler saying, why wasn't the SEC there? Where were you? How could you have let this happen? And Gary said, well, we were there. We were, it takes a long time to conduct an investigation. It's like, come on, dude. <laughs> you, yeah, you're having meetings yeah. with him. And actually, Kennedy didn't ask about that, which I was a little bit surprised at. Yeah, I mean, and David, to your point, I, I, I just think that, uh, A, there's the fact that they were meeting with all these people, but I think a lot of the action from the SEC is probably totally reasonable. Like 90% of this stuff probably are securities under existing law. I think they probably have grounds to go after Binance. I think the bridge too far was Coinbase. That's my feeling. This, their aggressive action towards Coinbase, that pissed a lot of people off. Well... Scott, we know that it's aggressive towards Coinbase because we can see Coinbase in full transparency. It's public. It's 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 listed. We know their financials. I'm just saying, why can't we extend the same treatment in terms of transparency to other exchanges, even if you're not a public entity? Is that should that be in the in the regulatory framework? I mean, if you've got assets under management, if you're an asset manager, you should disclose how much of how much of FTX's co-mingling was actually known by the SEC and Gary Mingle, Gary Gensler and all the people taking photos with him, uh, SBF, uh, before the fallout. That, I'm just posing yeah. questions. I don't, I don't have the answers. Well, I think they were blindsided. I mean, you guys, I, I, right. I don't know. I don't think that they were complicit in that way. I think that everybody put the guy on a pedestal. They thought he was the genius who was going to solve everything. And, uh, Obviously, we were in a bull market. Prices were high. People were making money, not losing it. I think it was just a very different world. But to your point, in this bill, and maybe Eleanor has more specifics on it, they do go pretty deep into how the exchanges would actually have to operate moving forward, the transparency, whether it would be CFTC or SEC. And I think, as she said earlier, what many people might like about this and might give it a path, I'm not that confident, but might give it a path, is that it really does leave quite a bit of power still with the SEC. Yeah, it really does. And like I said earlier, I feel like that might be a good bargaining chip for the Democrats because, you know, they do want to see the SEC involved. We know that they do like Gary Gensler. So it does. And everybody in crypto is calling for the SEC to get out of crypto, right? They don't have the authority. They don't have the jurisdiction. But this bill does give them quite a lot of authority. But in a 
in a way that, you know, is not disproportionate to the CFTC. I feel like they they both have pretty balanced roles, although we don't know because we don't know like which tokens are deemed what yet. We're not sure like, you know, who's going to have that quite yet. So, you know, that'll be remain that remains to be seen. But, um, you know, the uh, I think a big focus of this bill and that goes back to the FTX sort of debacle is that you, you type in, you know, control F and you, you, uh, you type in segregating customer assets. And that is a huge part of this bill. Like no matter what, whether you're registered with the CFTC, the SEC, you have to make sure and promise that your customer funds are segregated and they are not commingling. And I think obviously FTX was a big influence on that in this bill. Yeah. I mean, David, don't you think that that's the most obvious take that any regulator could take at this point is that we should not have exchanges be custodians and that uh, custodians should not be OTC desks and basically that we need this sort of wall of separation between the roles. I mean, we don't, nobody seems to talk about prime trust, which blows my mind, but like one of the biggest custodians in the crypto space allegedly just lost private keys and then committed freaking to cover it up. Did you guys, did you guys watch that uh, Gary Gensler interview on Bloomberg? Uh, I don't know, I can't remember, about a month and a half ago, the reporter was asking, it's like a 12 minute segment, the reporter was asking him about why he's going after Binance. And he answered the question, um, more broadly, he says, well, it's not just a Binance problem. The entire crypto industry has been commingling funds. Um, and it's not its not just one single exchange. This is just kind of the norm, he said. And th- that's true. He's going to your earlier question. Is he done? No. He's, there's a lot more actors he's going to go after. Oh, I think there's a lot more coming if he gets the resources. I just think maybe yeah. he's run into a brick wall here. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of conjecture that the next targets would be uh, smaller and mid-range VCs, you know, basically uh, and maybe some other projects and stuff, but a lot more low-hanging fruit, people who would settle and it wouldn't require resources to actually go after them in court now that they're dealing with Ripple, Coinbase, and Binance at the exact same time. Yeah, Eleanor, uh, who do you, Eleanor, who do you think is next? Have you, have you received the tip off of who's getting sued next? Actually, come back to me for a second because I did have a conversation with someone the other day okay. and let me just, I'll get back to you on that question, but um, okay. the, uh, what was I going to say? The, um, <clears throat> got out of my head come back to me <laughs> no problem yeah we'll, we'll come right back to you i, I listen I, I prime trust uh, obviously is gonna have a whole lot of action against them but that's pretty obvious i don't i mean i think there's some element of dcg that might have some problems i just you know uh very shady what's happening with genesis and the sort of incestuous relationship with uh grayscale and such but I can't really speak, but every time I dig into this exact question, David, with anyone privately, they say, well, Barry Silver, right? They're like, he was kind of behind all this lending and the whole C5 movement and uh, the GBTC trade that collapsed everybody. And so I I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we see action there. And if GBTC ceases to be the cash cow that it is, DCG is in big trouble regardless. So if they convert to an ETF and can't collect their 2%, that's big trouble, even though they're trying to convert to an ETF. Eleanor, do you find out? Yeah. So we were saying how, you know, how he always mentions trading against customers. He mentioned that several times during the hearing. So this person, my source, who was having a conversation, which uh, they said, I will bet you that a case on that is coming next or in the near future, um, where uh, an entity trades against their customers. Who might that be? Who do you guys think? Well, next did it. 
and got in trouble for it already. Uh, Coinbase had the insider trading uh, case, but that wasn't trading against. It was just using insider information to personally benefit. I can't imagine an exchange in the United States necessarily that's trading against our customers, but I think if you go internationally, almost all of them. Mm-hmm. I think all of these exchanges, largely a bunch of them have prop desks. I mean, I, how big exchange are living, sweeping your stops. Right? Yeah, I'm going to... I'm going to jump back to your earlier question about uh, what do what do you think the uh, the regulators want in terms of exchanges and self custody? Uh, my take is that they want exchanges to offer self custody and then regulate that part. Because why would they why would they want self custody to be unregulated? Think about that. I agree with that. And I think one of the stories that kind of went uh, untold, is it EDX Markets, the one that's uh, Schwab, Fidelity, and Citadel, the the institutional exchange that was launched by them? That exchange is non-custodial. You trade it apparently from your own wallet. They don't custody any of your assets. And that's the approach from Schwab, Fidelity, and Citadel. You don't get any bigger than that. So I think that, David, I think you're right there. The question is, how is that going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, in that particular case, they have intermediaries doing the custody. So it's right. still, yeah. somebody's still doing the custody. It's just not the originator. I guess, yeah, not that. I, I guess you're not trading from your own wallet per se, but it is, they call it a non-custodial exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how would they, how would they regulate self-custody, do we think? Like you have to report it on your taxes type of thing? I mean, they can't really regulate how you do it, but are you talking about effectively tracking the assets and making sure that they know where it is and what you have? Yeah. But like I said before, it's just, it's so, that's so much information. And how are you going to compile that? You're going to need to, they're going to have to hire a heck of a lot more people for this undertaking. I mean, for both CFTC and the SEC, because these are such nuances that they're not dealing with right now. And if they really want to put this into play, it's going to take a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of kind of pioneering of this new frontier. On that front, though, they do have something else that stood out to me was the, um, they're suggesting that there be a advisory committee with, I think, around 20 market participants that would report to the SEC and the CFTC joint committee and give them advice, kind of collaborate on new things, new things in the industry, keep them abreast of what's going on and suggestions. So I feel like this collaboration with industry is good, right? Because it's kind of since from like everything we've seen up until now has been very much, you know, regulatory versus industry, no sort of collaboration. So I think that is a good development. You know, we're having the conversation now. I agree. Listen, I think we've unpacked this bill pretty well. There's one other thing that I just crossed my mind because of the people in the comments that I want to ask you about, especially you, David. You guys see this? Senators Kristen Gillibrand and Josh Hawley have officially introduced the bipartisan Ban Stock Trading for Government Officials Act. The bill bans stock trading, stock ownership, and blind trust. How, how will Nancy Pelosi survive? Was it your tweet, Scott? You said you're like, sorry, Nancy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's me. I, I mean, you know, I, I love a good Nancy Dunk. She's not even the best trader, though, and she gets all the attention, but there, there's some that are that are out trading her. But I mean, yeah, her husband pass. is out trading her. That's right. This this won't pass, though, right? I doubt it. Is, is doubt it, it the very people benefiting from it that need to uh, pass it? It's, this is kind of like uh, trying to pass term limits for Congress. Yeah, and something I've learned is that it's notoriously hard to prove insider trading, right? So this is just, you know, it's a 
it's a good sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, like a good uh, front, I guess. It's like makes them look good, but is it ever going to pass? Is it ever really going to have any impact? Probably not. Yeah, I agree. It's never going to pass. Well, Eleanor, I'm going to let you go because you have to join me in 30 minutes on spaces and we're going to talk about this again. The spaces topic today is actually the lack of VC funding in crypto. But because of this breaking news, you and I are going to at least break this down at the beginning of the show. So, uh, cool. Let me know what you will see if you find anything else uh, new out of the next 30 minutes. But thank you as always, guys. Everybody, her uh, Twitter is in the description. Please follow her. if She's literally breaks all of the news that uh, we report on here. So uh, she's the person you need to be following, not us. Thanks, Thank Scott. You. Thanks, David. Thanks, you, Eleanor. Nice to meet I, you. Thank you. Yep. So I know it's uh, you know six forty-five a.m., David, over there. But anything else on your mind uh, worth discussing before we before we get out of here? Uh, I, I don't think amazing we, shirt. I don't, I don't think we've talked about Fed now yet. Let's um, do that. Yeah. So you, this event, we, you and I actually on our last interview was when I think one of them was when Fed now was a was a initially discussed, and Fedcoin was the big talk. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm reading some, well, there's a lot of articles on FedNow, uh, but the Federal Reserve is saying that um, the FedNow service, I'm reading a quote, the FedNow service is not related to a digital currency. Um, the FedNow service is neither a form of currency nor a step toward eliminating any form of payment, including cash. They really want to make the distinction that this is not a precursor to FedCoin. Yeah, and I, I actually agree. It's not using any blockchain technology. Jerome Powell has come out and openly said, we will never launch a central bank digital currency for retail. The only way we would do something like that would be for institutional use. And the more I dig into Fed now, it feels like the government finally just got Venmo, literally. And it's like they were using a system from the 1980s. The rest of us can transact in real time, digitally, face to face. Why wouldn't the Fed be able to do that? Why wouldn't these banks be able to do it? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, from a technological improvement standpoint, this certainly seems to be um, a step in the right direction. I'm looking forward to having the financial institutions of TradFi banks implement some of this technology to just make transferring money more efficient, cheaper, and faster. Uh, I mean, forget the oversight and the privacy concerns, just make money, sending money easier. Um, you know, you've got the trust. You, you, look, at the end of the day, people trust their own banks still more than some unregulated exchange. I especially given what's happened now. So, 100%. right? If I want to, I I'm, people are literally asking me, "How do I transfer you money?" And vice versa. I said, "Just use your wallet." And it's it's like I don't want to do that. It's 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 a process. It's a hassle. I don't want to set up my own whatever. Right? But I, I tell them doing it over your bank international transfer is going to take days. Solve that problem for us, guys. Yeah, and I think this this does solve that. Literally, nobody wants to send a wire transfer that takes a week, yeah. right? And so this should be much faster. I actually wrote a newsletter intro a week or two ago saying how crypto is just not there yet and making effectively the same point that you did. It's funny because I was sitting at a table at a conference with five Bitcoiners and crypto guys, and we decided we were going to like split the bill for dinner. And... Not one person proposed that we use crypto to do it. We all, everybody Venmoed me money and I paid on my credit card. Like we are like four people, active wallets, five wallets sitting there, access to crypto. And not one of us was like, we should do this with Bitcoin. Yeah. 
Yeah. It doesn't it tell you everything you need to know that even uh, us who are like deep down the rabbit hole just viewed Venmo as a hell of a lot easier for doing this? Um, you know, another development that uh, we should probably bring to light is uh, in Europe uh, with Mika, now banks are on the path towards being able to hold crypto. I don't know if I'm we're seeing that in the US. Have you noticed any um any developments on that front, Scott? Interestingly, before this administration, when we had Clayton at the SEC, Brian Brooks at the OCC, and John Carlo at the CFTC, we had those chair people, at least some of them writing letters that were giving some precedent to allow it. I, I think it was um Brooks that wrote the letter at the OCC that allowed banks to, he said that banks like BNY Mellon, State Street custodians would be able to custody crypto assets. We just haven't heard about it since, but it still is technically allowed. I think a lot of them are moving that direction. NASDAQ actually was supposed to be uh, looking to custody assets. And yesterday, I think they withdrew that actually uh, because I think BlackRock's coming in with an ETF and, and it's unnecessary. And then the other thing was that Clayton had written, uh, not not Clayton, Brooks, I think, had written a letter that said that banks could test stable coins rather than swift wire transfers for international payments. So it was like loosely proposed here. And then we just got regime change. And obviously the new chair people just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm curious to see how the um, crypto exchanges will respond to the day when your bank can just transfer Bitcoin for you to another bank account, AKA wallet. I think it's gonna be huge. So I think people want an ETF, right? Because as much as we want every Bitcoiner to want to self-custody and own their Bitcoin and hold it forever, you made the best point, which is 99% of people just trust their bank, right? And those same 99% of people, if they are the ones fortunate enough to be able to afford to buy stock or to invest in general, they want to buy an ETF. They don't care that it's paper Bitcoin or that it's not in their wallet. They're they're buying it as an investment, not as a hedge against uh, you know Mad Max dystopian future. And so at the same end, I think they they would just rather trust these legacy institutions, and that's what's going to bring mainstream adoption, whether we like it or not. Yeah, I'm I'm just going to push back slightly on the on the notion that retailers are interested in the Bitcoin ETF. Why why would you if, if like you're you're like you and I we're not we're not BlackRock or any large fund, why would you want to buy a Bitcoin ETF when you can just buy spot? Why would you pay a management fee for a product that already yeah. exists? Like, it, it, I understand the 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 the, 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 the prospect uh, of owning a Bitcoin ETF for an institutional investor who has a mandate to not to only invest in certain types of securities that makes sense for them. Uh, but for the retailer, I don't see much value. I do because of the same sort of argument that we made before, but I think it's just less friction. If you already own a Schwab account and you don't have a Coinbase account and you've seen five out of seven available crypto exchanges in the United States collapse last year, I don't see rushing off to get a Gemini account right now and they're in litigation with Genesis and have lost uh, customer funds in their earn program. I just think it's a friction argument. Maybe I'm overestimating how many people actually want to own Bitcoin and right now are saying I won't because of the process. Maybe I'm just wrong there. But I think it, I, the argument really is that it just becomes another asset for people. Like this is just another thing I'm going to have in my stock portfolio and an ETF gives them that. And certainly being able to custody and send it in a bank, they want more than having to self-custody it on a ledger in their safe. I, I understand that argument. But for me, like it, I, I, I have some Bitcoin. I have some Ethereum. I, I, I hold those in my MetaMask. I need to convert, I instantly transfer to my 
to my um, to my exchange, which takes no time at all. And then yeah. I'll just transfer it to fiat. I don't use my exchange to custody. I use it to to off ramp to fiat. So I I a hundred percent agree with that. Here's a great point from the comments: BlackRock, Ark, etc., bring credibility and a perception of safety. I think that's it. It's I, I just yeah. think that if uh, you know BNY Mellon and State Street are saying, "Hey, we will custody Bitcoin assets," and BlackRock is giving you the stamp of approval, and you can buy it. I think that the gateway for most people before self custody is going to be one of these assets. I just saw at the end of the day, is it just good to have more options for people to buy this stuff? Even the hardware wallet manufacturers are a potential risk. I'm just reading it on Yeah, right there. And that's true, right? So now, like, Ledger was considered the gold standard in safety, and now people are questioning Ledger. I, I, I'm not necessarily, it's an opt in program, but like, let, let me, so let me throw this here, Scott. Let me let me throw this at you, Scott. Look, you we can't live in a world where we can't trust anybody. I mean, okay, sure, maybe it, it's a it's a it's a probability of risks and rewards. I mean, who is more likely to basically screw you over? Is it is it BlackRock? Is it a hardware wallet? Is it an exchange? Who do you trust the least? And then who do you trust more? It's a spectrum, right? What, what what's on your spectrum? Do you want the answer? Who I trust the least? Unfortunately, yeah. Me. Please go me. <laughs> what does that, what does that mean? Well, that's the problem with self-custody. I'm not saying that necessarily as myself, but I'm saying it as an example. I think that for 90, and there's a very unpopular take, CZ once said it, I think for at least nine out of 10 people, they are much more likely to screw up their own self-custody than to get screwed by one of these other people that you mentioned. I, I see what you mean, yeah. I think I, I'm more likely to lose my keys. It was funny, I had Pascal from Ledger, the CEO, on my show the day that all their like FUD broke. We put it out and, and then an hour later, literally all the FUD broke. But he said that he told me a story where he had lost his private keys to a wallet. This guy, this guy literally created the Ledger. It's his thing. We see it all. Prime Trust lost keys. They're a trusted custodian. So the point being, I'm not saying I don't trust myself in full competence, but if someone walks in and tries to rob me, if I fall on my head, if I get the car crash, yeah. God knows what happens to my assets. And leaving that breadcrumb trail for your kids, it's a hell of a lot easier. And it's not the same. I'm not saying it's the same. It's a hell of a lot easier for your wife to go into your Schwab account and sell your BlackRock ETF if something happens to you. Let me, let me, let me extend that argument uh, one step further. You're, you're probably not prior you're not an idiot and scott i know you like you're, you're a smart guy you're you're you know you are probably not prioritizing this right now because you just don't need to are you gonna go to your bagel shop down the street and pay with xrp are you gonna never pay with it's, it's quite a taxable transaction who wants to track that the day that you pay with bitcoin with any on anything that you buy that would be the day that you're actually going to start prioritizing your keys and there's going to be a whole new development and infrastructure and helping you with that process. Um, yeah. So that's it's a chicken and egg problem. I think that needs to come first before people start to really start to care. And yeah, I don't disagree. The, yeah. the new Ledger pitch, like their new product that's designed by the guy who did the iPod, uh, you've seen it, but it's pretty slick. It's awesome. It's called Stacks and they stack up. Right. And so, like, you kind of have the one you'll leave in your, you know, in the safety deposit box that's your bank account, but you can stack them and transfer assets. But then maybe you have the one that you carry around that has a hundred bucks in cash and your cool NFT on the screen that you want to show. That is their solution for it, is that 
Yeah. It's going to work exactly like your bank account. Like I've got, you know, you've got your Apple Pay on your phone. So you've got your your wallet for custody and then you've got a checking account for payments. You put your Bitcoin, whatever, whatever, whatever security or token you want into that payment account. And then you just scan it on um, with the vendor. Um, you don't have to really like think okay. about it on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, that's the future. Really interesting discussion. See, Dave and I didn't plan this at all. We're just really good at banter, guys. Really good. Smart. Well, Scott, Scott's just a smart guy. So, you know. But it's funny. We're both putting each other on the spot on the opposite side of the mic that we're, that we're used to. It makes it fun, though, that I can come on here and actually have someone ask me a question every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Never happens on my channel. What time, do you, what time do you record your shows now? Like, what, what's the rest of your day look like? Uh, I don't. I don't have a fixed live stream schedule like you. Yeah. Um, everything I'm doing so far is just pre-recorded. So I've got another one later in the day. Um, it, it just it varies day to day. So usually I film. I'm I'm based on the West Coast. I don't know where are you based these days, Scott. I'm in Florida. Yeah, I'm in Florida. Okay, so you're three hours ahead. So I'm three hours behind you. So I usually wrap up filming by around um, like 2 p.m. Eastern, and then I spend the rest of my day kind of editing and preparing for the next day. So that's kind of my yeah. schedule. Guys, I'm not kidding. Please listen. His channel has been up for like two or three months, and it's as big as this one, right? And uh, not not our biggest subscribers. You'll be there in like a week, and your your views are out of control. But uh, we really wanted to try this out, and it lives. And if David's amenable, we're gonna really, I think, work on this and make it uh, a more regular show. And obviously, we'll come up with a name for it and, and all the proper stuff. Not just throw him uh, out here in front of you on a random Friday and make you wonder what the hell is happening. But. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, one of the people I respect by far the most and just oh, a really incredible, inter incredible interviewer. So you always ask the great questions and to be frank, and by Friday, sometimes I just run out of steam. You might have the same feeling, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I, I really appreciate that, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to come on more often and, you know, help, help, help out your channel in any way. It's, it's just fun to banter with you. I don't, I don't really care what platform. So yeah, I'm happy yeah. to be here and it, you're forcing me to wake up early. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. He's going right to the gym after this, everybody, and for a very healthy breakfast, obviously, obviously. Or a seventh cup of coffee already at uh, 7 a.m. Well, I got to get out of here and head over to uh, yeah. Twitter Spaces in 15 minutes, where you're also always welcome. David, thank you so much. We're going to uh, get offline, guys, and figure out how to do this even better. But uh, at, in my mind, this is a great test. I think it, it went exceptionally well. David, yeah, thank you so much, man. All right. And uh, everybody check out his channel and follow him. Do it now. Thank you. Before we go. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. See you Monday.